We're in Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 6 through 10 tonight. Those are the verses we're going to cover. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the verses we're going to dig into tonight. And actually, we're going to spend a lot of our time just on the very first thing that he says here. Look at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Um, there's a lot here. So what we're going to do is break this down. The first thing I want to pull out from this verse here is the fact that the scripture says that to drift from living in grace into legalism is to leave God. Listen closely. And we're going to take some time to help you see this. It says to drift from living in grace into legalism is actually to leave God. See, the ironic thing is that legalists would have you think that your efforts of the flesh will bring you closer to God. You know, for those of us who've grown up under that kind of teaching that God expects you to do this and this and this and you're a good Christian and did you, did you read your Bible and did you have your quiet time and, and did you go to church? And, did, and we, we've been taught that when you do certain things, they bring you closer to God. In actuality, Paul is saying that when these people were falling prey to listening to the teaching about legalism, that it actually, by trying to do those certain things, they actually were pulling themselves away from God. Now, put a bookmark here and go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Look at how Paul describes it there. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, we're going to break this passage down later when we get to chapter 5. But what I want you to see is this. Here how, look how he describes it. He says, if you are wanting to think or falling prey to the teaching that you have to do certain things in order to be pleasing to God... You're actually pulling yourself away from Christ. You're being severed from the grace and living in the grace that we've been given. And you actually are being separated from Christ. Again, like I said, we've been taught all our lives that if we do those things, we'll be closer. And many of us have felt that way. Well, like, you know, when we, when we didn't read our Bibles on the day before or maybe the last week or the last month, we felt like we were away from Christ and he was upset with us and we were bad Christians, you know, or, or I didn't share my faith in that situation when I had that opportunity at the bus station. You know, oh, I'm such a bad Christian. God's upset with me. And we thought that there were things that we did that would bring us closer to God. We thought certain, certain things were sec secular 
there and other things were sacred. And when we did the sacred things, then God was pleased. And when we were doing the secular things, God was displeased because he wanted us to do the, sac the sacred things. And what Paul is saying is this, if you actually think that there are certain things you have to do to actually bring you closer to God, you're misunderstanding the whole gospel. And on top of that, you're actually pulling yourself away from Christ by trying to draw closer to Christ through your own effort. He says, you're deserting back here in chapter one. I'm so surprised that you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Uh, go, go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Look at 21 through 23, verses 21 through 23 in Matthew 7. And this might help us see that a little bit more clearly. <clears throat> now, this is a passage many of us have heard before, but I want you to look at it from this angle. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We're going to answer that question in a little bit. What is the will of the Father? But look at what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On, the day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, isn't that interesting? Here are these people saying, Lord, we did good stuff. And we did it for you. We did it in your name and we did it for you. God, we, man, we preached. Uh, we cast out demons. Uh, we did all sorts of good stuff. And he'll say, it's not the things you do that bring you closer to me. It's the, when you do the will of my father. That's what brings you into a relationship with me. So now we've got to answer that question then. What is he saying that is the will of the Father? Because most of us growing up in church would, would say this is the kind of stuff that we thought the super Christians were doing. And Jesus says, I don't know you. So what is the will of his Father? The good news is the Bible answers these questions. Go to John chapter 6 and look at verses 28 and 29. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. Verse 28 of chapter 6, they say, Then they said to him, which is Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. All right? Now, stick with me, because I know that for some of you, you're kind of with me and kind of not. But stick with me here, and hopefully the Spirit of God will help you to grasp what we're looking at here. They said, what do we need to do then to do the work that God requires? And he said, this is the work that God requires. Believe in the one that he sent. All right? Now, go with me with that in mind to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. We're going to take some time to kind of really take a look at this. Romans what? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now I'm going to read this slowly. We're going to kind of break this section down to help you grasp what we're talking about here, to be in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to believe in Him. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, look closely again, 
For God has, you could even put the word already in there if you want. For God has already done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, we've got to stop here for a second before I read on. Look at what he's saying here. He said, for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation because you have entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, you are righteous. You won't be condemned. You, you are righteous in Christ. Now, God has already done through what Jesus did on the cross what the law couldn't do. Now, remember what the law was. What was the purpose of the law? God gave his commandments to do what? Does anybody know? To show us that we couldn't keep it. The Bible is very clear that the purpose of the law was to show us we couldn't keep the law. Once we realize we can't keep the law, the Bible says the law has done its job. It's to show you you're a lawbreaker. That's why when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the law. Most of us would say, wrong answer, Jesus. That's not the answer. No, actually, the young man needed to realize he couldn't keep the law first. Once he came to realize he couldn't keep the law, then he was ready to come and understand who Jesus was and to give him his life and faith. God has already done what the law couldn't do. The law can't make you righteous. I don't care how much you tried to not covet, how much you tried not to hate and, and not to commit adultery. And I don't care how much you tried to do those. The law cannot make you righteous. Why? Because the Bible says if you're able to keep the whole law, James chapter 2, verse 10, and stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. The law cannot make you righteous. And that's why later on, we, we actually we already saw it, but we'll deal with it later on in chapter 5 when we read in Galatians 5. He said, if you're going to try to be made righteous by the law, you're obligated to keep the whole law perfectly. Well, good luck with that. But see how foolish it is that we thinking, are thinking then, even after salvation, that our good deeds will make God happy with us and then that'll bring us closer to him. When you're trying to get closer to God through your good actions, you're actually pulling yourself away from how it works in this relationship where you just accept that you have been accepted through Christ Jesus. Now, well, what about good deeds? What about good deeds? James, people for years thought that James and Paul were arguing with each other because James uh, said that, well, you say you have faith, show me by your actions. And Paul said, it's, you're not saved by your works, but it's by grace through faith. Actually, they're both saying the same thing. Yes, in time, once you understand how to live in Christ, once you understand how to let him live his life through you, lots of good deeds will come out of it, but there, you will start getting out of that mindset of thinking, well, I did those things, God was pleased. You understand those good deeds were done by Jesus and you don't think they brought you any closer to him. But at first, we've got to break from this mindset of thinking that certain things will bring us closer to Christ. You're already in Christ. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, you're in Him and He's in you and He's in the Father. You are swimming in God. So stop thinking that you still have to do certain things. Well, God, didn't I preach and didn't I, didn't I at least go to Wednesday night supper? <laughs> We think that the certain things we do will make us get points with God. You don't understand your relationship. And in trying to get closer to God by doing certain things, you're actually distancing yourself from God. Because he's only responding to what? Faith. Receiving who you are through what all has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on in verse 5 here to say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
Remember, the flesh is anything done independent of God. Anything that's not done, been done by God is the flesh. It manifests itself in lots of things. It can manifest itself in sexual immorality. It can manifest itself in good works. You trying to do certain things in your own strength. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, you see it's capital S, set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Did you catch that? You're trying to earn God's approval through things you're doing? You're actually working in hostility to God. Because you're still, remember what last week we looked at the fact that the cross was offensive? Why? Because the flesh wants credit. When you try to do things in the flesh, you're actually saying, I don't need you, God. I can do this, and you need to give me points for it. That's actually hostility, God. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Good news here in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. All right? You're not in the flesh if you're saved. If you're a child of God, you're in Christ. You just need to live out of that understanding instead of trying to live out of your old, old ways, if you will. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, listen closely, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Look at that. When you learn to let him live his life through you, you will have victory over your flesh. You will have victory over temptation and sin. If you learn on a daily basis how to yield to the Spirit of God who's already within you, it's not up to you to do a better job. It's not up to you to try harder. It's not up to you to be a better Christian. It's you learning how to daily <coughs> renew your mind and say, Lord, I still, because of my flesh, am going to be pulled away from you. But you live within me. And I want you to live your life through me. Just like you lived in a human body when you were on this earth and you were tempted in every way, yet you had victory. I want you to do it again in my life. I want you to have the same control over this body that you had over your own. And I'm giving it to you. And I believe you'll do it. And I'm going to avoid those things that I'm supposed to avoid. And I'm going to pursue the things I'm supposed to pursue. But I'm not thinking it's me doing it. I'm thinking it's you. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live now, I live by faith in the one who died for me. Paul says, as I go around now, I'm letting Jesus live his life through me. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen closely to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Now we're going to see this a whole lot more as we get into our study of Galatians down the road. But just keep in mind, we're trying to learn what does it mean to really be a Christian, living under the power of the Holy Spirit, being led of the Spirit. Understanding his power, his control, his, 
well, yieldedness to him. All right. Uh, real quick, and then we'll jump back to Galatians 1. I want you to see from Romans 8 three things. Look who has already done the work of making you righteous. Who has? God. He's already done it through Jesus. Look who will give life to your mortal bodies. God. Jesus himself. And we are to live our lives led by God's spirit, not in our effort. And you try to be a better Christian, you're actually going to be pulling yourself away from Christ. You'll be deserting Christ. Why? Because the same Jesus that said, you can't save yourself. I want to. Would you let me do it? And you finally said, okay, Jesus, I believe. Would you please give me righteousness? is the same Jesus that says, you can't live the Christian life. But I will, if you'll let me. And on a daily basis, we have to yield now to the Spirit of God within us. And we have to choose, as Romans 6 takes the time to go there, you choose whom you're going to serve. Whether it's the flesh, or whether it's the Spirit of God within you. Oh, before you had the Spirit of God within you, you were controlled by the sinful nature. You were a slave to sin. You had no choice. Because you did not have the master, Jesus Christ, living within you. You had no choice but to submit. I don't care how much you tried to defeat your flesh. You never could. You were a slave to sin. But now that Christ has come to live within you through your faith in him, you have a choice now daily. Am I going to let my flesh have control or am I going to let the spirit of Christ have control? Oh, and by the way, that is going to be a daily struggle for the rest of your life. I used to think that the longer I walked with Christ, the more I would get to this level of whatever you want to call it, spirituality where I would no longer be tempted by certain things. And over the years, as I've been a Christian since 1973, it started to bother me that some of the same stuff I struggled with, I struggled with 20 years ago. And then one day it hit me as I was reading about Jesus in the garden and how he was tempted. And he didn't want to go to the cross, yet he went and obeyed. It hit me. Wait a minute. Jesus was God. He was sinless. He was perfect. He's about as high on that chart of getting more spiritual than you ever can get. And he was tempted. If Jesus was tempted in his perfection, Jim Johnson's going to be tempted the rest of his life. I used to think I would no longer be tempted. Boy, that made it easier on me. Now I realize until I get rid of this body, I will still be tempted. But I have the power within me to say no now when before I didn't. And before, those of you who know what I'm talking about, you've been there. How many times have we said, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I won't do that again? And God smiles and says, good luck with that. <laughs> All right. Go back to Galatians chapter 1. So the first thing we see in this section is, is that to drift from living in grace into legalism is to leave God. The second thing we see in here is the fact that the true gospel, in the true gospel, God calls and seeks us. Not we seek God. Look at what he says. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who what? Called. Who called you. I don't know if you've ever looked at this, but you go ahead and do it. Every other religion, and I hate to even compare Christianity to other religions, because Christianity is not a religion. It's truth. It's a relationship with God. But every other religion... Has you seek God? Has you pursue God through your effort? Islam has the five pillars of Islam and the things they must do. Uh, and they hope that one day they'll be considered righteous. Even their highest leaders, their imams, don't even know if they're going to be going to heaven or not. They just hope through their, they've been good enough. Uh, Judaism, actually, they misunderstood the gospel and they were trying to earn God's approval. 
They didn't understand that God was seeking them. All the way through Hinduism, Buddhism, there are things you must do as you reach up to God in hopes that he will reach down to you since you reached to him first. But in the true gospel, it's God who pursues you. God is the one who calls you. God is the one who is seeking you at all times. Oh, and listen up. He's not only calling you at all times before you came to know him, he's still pursuing you after he came, you came to know him. I want so bad to stop right here and preach a whole message on the fact that if you look at relationships that God had with individuals, every single time God initiated the encounter. You go and look. When individuals had an encounter with God, God initiated it every single time. When Jacob was sleeping there with his head on the rock and all of a sudden the angels started ascending and descending, who showed up first? God came and pursued Jacob. The woman at the well, he pursued him. Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat in your house. The two men on the road to Emmaus who thought that Jesus was the one, but now they're a little discouraged. Jesus pursued them. When Jesus rose from the dead, the first person he went to go find was Peter. He went to Matthew's tax collector's booth. He went to James and John's work site with their dad while they were catching fish. All the way through scripture, every single time, God initiates the encounters. And we sometimes have been fed the lie that when we're in sin, God is back there with his arms crossed, waiting for us to realize our wrong, Ask for his forgiveness and pursue him, and then perhaps he'll reach down and forgive. No, you don't understand. God is calling everyone. He's pursuing everyone, for not only for salvation, but after salvation, for sanctification. He's going to finish what he started. He is pursuing you at all times. Oh, people say, oh, I'm fighting against God. No, all you're doing is resisting his loving advances. Now, sometimes because of the fact that he wants to win, He'll amp up what he has to do to get your attention. And it may be painful, but it's still out of his love because he's pursuing you for your best. Amen. God seeks us, folks. So don't think, I got to do certain things to get back to God. Think back to the prodigal son. Oh, I'm not worthy to be called his son. I'll go back and be a hired hand. Who was waiting for him and chased him down to hug him and kiss him when he came around the bend? The father. He's looking for him. He's pursuing at all times. He wasn't sitting back in his master bedroom saying, well, make him come here and grovel. Oh, no. He was pursuing him. Look at what it says in uh, uh, John chapter 15. I'm going to give you three passages that kind of hammer this home. There's many more, but just want you to see this. John chapter 15, look at verse 16. John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. By the way, I'm going to read this verse again. And at the very, very end of our study, I'm going to hope that maybe for some of you, if not all of you, something that Jesus says here will make sense. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I really want you to be listening. Ask God now. Lord, say, Lord, I don't want to miss what Jim's referring to here that's going to tie from this verse to the end of the study. But I want you to hear it from him and not from me. All right. You, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. All right. Again, Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I was pursuing you before you pursued me. Go to Luke 19. Back up one book. Go to Luke 19. Look at verse 10. 
It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Remember, remember who he came to? He came to the Jews first. They thought they were okay, didn't they? I mean, they're doing all the do's and trying to not do the don'ts. And, and they thought they were in pretty good shape. Self-righteous. Self-righteous. They thought they were okay because of the things they were doing had to count before God. They were putting confidence in their flesh and in their effort. And Jesus came and pursued them to show them you're not okay and you need to see it. And I want you to see it. Go to one other place. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> then Isaiah, chapter 10 of Romans, verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Do you see it? Who's pursuing here? God in love is pursuing. He revealed himself to the Gentiles who weren't even looking for him. And on top of that, he stands there still with his arms outstretched toward the nation of Israel. And they're going to, by his grace, come back to him in the very, very last days, which are getting close. As we were just reading these verses, and, and all, I just was reminded right now, years ago, um, back before Becky and I were even married, I was a single young man living in an apartment over in Palm Bay with my brother, and I was in a time period where I wasn't like in horrible, what the world would call horrible sin, but I was away from the Lord in my personal walk with Him. And I was in that time period of feeling that God was upset with me and he was, you know, waiting for me to get it right. And I remember laying myself on the living room floor and saying, God, I'm not going to move until I feel like you've accepted me back and all this stuff. Because I figured the longer I laid there, the more it counted, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I sure wish we had vacuumed more, you know, and, and I'm laying there on that carpet. And finally, after about an hour or two of thinking, you know, that's got to count for something, I went and played this song. And we're talking, you'd have to do some research to even find this song again. I want to find it. It's by a, a, a guy named Greg X. Voles. He was a lead singer for some Christian rock group back then. I don't even remember which one it was at the time. Chris probably would because he was into that hippie stuff. But, um, but Greg X. Voles had this song called Take Me Back. And in the lines of this song that I played that night, it... He says, all the way through the song, he's saying, I've done this, take me back. I've done this, take me back. But the song ends with this line. Through my tears, my eyes were opened, and I just had to laugh when I realized you never, ever let me go. Amen. And that was God's way 20-something years ago of saying, Jim, you don't got to grovel your way back. You ne I never let, never let you go. You're just missing out on my grace. Receive it. Receive it. Now, I know some of us were raised by parents who they felt that it was their job to make you feel bad for what you did. And once they felt you felt bad enough, then you would be accepted back. That's not who God is, folks. Don't let your earthly parents cloud your view of who God really is. All right. First thing we've seen in this passage is that to drift from living in grace into legalism is to leave God. The second thing we see in this passage in Galatians 1 is in the true gospel, God calls and seeks us, not we seek God. And then 
another thing I want you to see here, a third thing is, there is no other gospel. Look at what he says. He says, I'm surprised that you're leaving, uh, deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. We've got to deal with this. Some of us say, well, okay, Jim, this is a no-brainer. We all understand this. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But I want you to hear what I'm saying because I see things that you might not notice because of my travels and dealing with Christians around the country and now parts of the world. Listen to what, what I want you to hear. There is a lie that is creeping into the church where a lot of Christians will never say it out loud because they know that they might get attacked. But they believe that maybe Jesus is one of the ways. In this day and age in which we live where everybody says there's many ways to God and what's true for you it may not be true for me, but what is true for you is just acceptable, as acceptable as what's true for me. In this day and age in which my, the mindset of the world is heading in that direction, that anybody can live however they want and nobody can make a judgment about that. Of course, unless you're a Christian, then they can have a say whether or not you should live how you want. But at the same time, you don't realize it. And it might even have crept into your mind a little bit. And I'm telling you now, kick it out quick. It is a lie. There is no other gospel. Acts chapter 4, we're not going to turn there, verse 12. Peter says, there is salvation in no other name except Jesus. Amen. Folks, there are people out there in our churches today who think, well, and I actually had one person tell me this. I know Jesus is the way for me. And he's the only way I can get to heaven. But there might be other ways for other people. And I'll say, I'm not sure you understand the gospel. Because there is no other gospel. And to accept any other way to God as equal or even possible is to distort the gospel. Folks, yeah, you're going to get attacked for it. You may be put to death for that if Jesus tarries. Because things are headed in that direction. I don't know if you know it or not. If you've been following what's going on in the world, and it's creeping into our country. Creeping. Yeah, I'm, I'm being nice by saying creeping. It's rapidly advancing in our country. You are going to become more and more and more the minority if you believe that Jesus is the only way that anyone can be reconciled to God. But I'm telling you now, please hold fast to that. Fast to that because there is no other gospel. Now, there's a fourth thing I want you to see here as well. Distorting the gospel in any way makes what is taught not the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Look at what he says here in verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul was saying, look, these people that are trying to tweak the gospel, trying to add some things to the gospel... They're distorting it, and it's making what they're teaching now not the gospel. Not a, a tweaked form of the gospel. It's not the gospel. All right? Anything added to faith alone in order to be saved is a distortion of the truth. I'm going to say it again. Anything added to faith alone in Christ Jesus in order to be saved is a distortion of the truth. Look how serious this is in Paul's eyes, by the way. I mean, he's jumped right into this in this book. And he says that if anyone himself, he said, if, if we, the people that have been hanging out with me as I've come to preach to you, or an angel from heaven, or anyone else, preach any other gospel than what you've already heard. If they add anything to this, let him be accursed. Now, we might not see this in the English as seriously as 
Paul meant it in the Greek. Because the word cursed isn't like, oh, I'll curse you or whatever. It actually is the Greek word anathema. And the best way I can translate anathema to you is this. That anathema is something so detestable that God is glorified in destroying it. He cursed the fig tree. Yeah. And died. Yep. And it died. Exactly. The Bible doesn't say at the end of the book of Revelation, if anybody adds or takes away from what's written in this book, let their name be taken out of the book of life. Anathema means anything so detestable that God is glorified in destroying it instantly. Eternally condemned. Yes. Well, that's another way to put it. It's eternally condemned. Yeah. It's, it's more than just go to hell. It's con not a complete annihilation. They, they go to hell and suffer the worst. As you know, there's levels of hell. And there's levels of punishment in hell. We don't know what they are. Just like there's levels of reward in heaven and we don't know what they are. It's pretty much saying, may this person go to hell and suffer in the worst part. That's how serious Paul is saying what he's saying here. Folks, we've got to be careful then ourselves, aren't we? Because we've already just kind of nodded and agreed earlier that throughout our lives, we kind of a little bit allowed some human flesh-type teaching creep into the gospel. And we've fallen prey to some of those tricks. We've got we to take this pretty serious here. And we need to know what the gospel is in its purest and truest form and make sure we're not allowing some flesh and legalism to creep in ourselves. Now, some were most likely saying that Paul, uh, they were accusing Paul of preaching a gospel that was pleasing to man. Since he was preaching what would make it easy for people to be saved. I mean, think of what he's saying here. It's all been done by Jesus. You receive it by faith. You live daily by faith in the fact that Jesus has not already, already forgiven you. Not only that you're already secure for eternity in heaven. Not only that you're in Christ and there's no condemnation. But also that same Jesus who lives in you is now going to live it out through you. And he's going to do it and not you. The reaction of those who don't understand this are, and we've all heard it, haven't we? But we've got to do our part. Haven't you? Didn't you grow up in church here and that as well? Yeah, I know Jesus did that, but you've got to do your part. And for years, I fell prey to that. I remember hearing this one preacher tell this illustration. He actually would preach in the sermon. And I, I remember as a kid hearing this. And he talked about the farmer and the, the, uh, and the, the Lord standing over a crop of corn. And the Lord says to... Uh, sorry... Say it again, it wasn't the farmer of the Lord, it was a farmer and a preacher standing over a crop of corn. And the preacher says, look what you and the Lord have done. And the farmer says, you should have seen the field when God had it all by himself. <laughs> and as a kid, I remember thinking, yeah, farmer had to do his part. And we've all fallen prey to that. Folks, the Bible actually says that it's all done by him. Anything not done by him is of the flesh. Anything not done by him counts for nothing before God. You've heard me say that before. That's why he told Abraham, take your son, your only son, when Abraham had two sons at the time. Because the flesh counts for nothing before God. We have to be real careful as well. Are we falling prey to that and thinking that I'm earning points? Trying to get God's favor through what I've done. And this is going to be a, a struggle against our flesh, like I told you, for a day, on a daily basis. Remember, our flesh finds the cross offensive. Our flesh wants some credit. 
We want some glory. In other words, they were saying that we must do something in order to be saved. We must bring something into this transaction. That's what the teachers coming behind Paul there in those churches in Galatians were saying. I know what Paul was saying, and he got most of it right, but you still got to do your part. And you got to be circumcised, and you got to follow the law of Moses, and there are things you have to do. There are people out there today that are still teaching, not circumcision, but the rest of the law, that you got to follow the law of Moses. For Christians, Paul goes on to make clear that he is not out to please man, but God. If he were a man pleaser, he would not be a slave of Christ. So what we're going to do is just deal with this problem that we all have for a little bit. We have to admit, not just me, not just us preachers, but all of us, we want acceptance, don't we? We want people's approval. All of us do. Don't pretend that you don't. Even the guy that says, I don't care what people think, he's lying to you. He does. He does. All right? We all want it. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read you a very familiar passage. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about this. First of all, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, are you going to be in the popular crowd? No, you are not going to be in the popular crowd. And if you want to be in the popular crowd, you can't be a follower of Christ. Just, I'll just give you a heads up right now. You want to be in the popular crowd, you can't be a follower of Christ. It won't work. You can't do both. But I thought we were just talking about the fact that the true gospel of grace is not through the hard things we have to do, but through faith in Christ. How come the scripture says that the way to destruction is easy and the way of life is hard? Are we just talking about? Very good. It's because of the flesh. Because of the fact that your flesh still wants credit. It's going to be hard in many ways. But the first battle you're going to be facing every day is against yourself. Secondly, it's also going to be against those who don't understand the gospel, even Christians. That's why Paul says here, they're spying on to your freedom and they're not happy with this. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 14. Keep in mind what Paul has just said about how serious distorting the gospel is. And look at what happens in verses 11 through 14. It says, Well, when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, and that means the Jerusalem Christian church, in the Christians in Jerusalem. James uh, was the, one of the leaders in that church in Jerusalem. Before certain men came down from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing that group of Christians that thought you had to be Jew first and then a Christian. 
All right. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, here's what's going on. Now, I don't know how many of you know the background of what's happened with Peter, but earlier in Acts chapter 10, he was up on this one roof and he has this dream, he has a vision. The sheet comes down with all these animals that were unclean according to the Jewish law. And God says, arise, kill and eat. And Peter says, I can't. I've never eaten anything that was unclean. And God says, what I've called clean now, don't call unclean. Right after having this strange vision, some Gentiles knock on his door and say, there's a man named Ananias. Sorry, is that right? Cornelius. Cornelius, thank you, I got the wrong guy. Cornelius, who says he wants you to come see him. So now Peter realizes from this vision that it's okay for him to go into a Gentile house. God says the Gentiles aren't unclean anymore. I've called them clean, you go into his house. So he goes in, he shares the gospel with them, their whole family gets saved, and now you go back and look at Acts 10. Peter says, now I know God accepts everyone. Yet, so when he came to Antioch, he had been eating with Gentiles. There's no problem with that anymore between Jews and Gentiles. That, that, that wall of division had been removed. There's one church. But then when certain people from the Jerusalem church came down who didn't have this same mindset, what did Peter do? He pretended he didn't eat with the Gentiles. It's like we love, a lot of times joke about, you know, closing our curtains before we dance for a certain song in our house because there might be those who have a problem with it. And we are so worried about what other people think, we actually stop living in the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, why did Paul oppose Peter to his face right then? Look at what the reason is right here in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He was distorting the gospel by thinking or pretending that, well, I shouldn't do certain things when, no. The gospel is these Gentiles are just as accepted through Jesus alone, not through whether or not they're circumcised, whether or not they're born Jew or born Gentile. The gospel says they are righteous and they're part of the family. And when you all of a sudden pretend that they're not because they haven't met certain requirements, you're distorting the gospel. And that's why Paul said, I had to deal with it right then. The other Jews started to do what, pretend that they hadn't eaten with the Jews and Barnabas even got led astray. And I started to think about it. How often in our lives do we do most of what we do worried about what other people are thinking? Most of it is. And you know why? It's because that's how we were raised. That's kind of how the church has functioned over the years. Satan knows that we all desire approval and acceptance. Satan knows that we really want other people to like us. And he has, over the years, actually allowed other Christians and used other Christians to get us to conform to distorting the gospel. Now, go to Galatians 5, and you'll see it even more clearly. Look at verses 13 through 15. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Paul says, For you were called to freedom. Brothers, now don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another watch out that you're not consumed by one another has anybody sat in on a church business meeting lately <laughs> and don't we attack each other over well I think it ought to be done this way and I think it ought to be done that way and I think you should vote this way and boom 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 and actually if you've if any of you heard the message I preached just recently on not your call from 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible says really clearly that who is our master individually? The Lord Jesus. And we're all going to stand before him one day. And part of your moving into freedom in Christ is to first stop worrying about what other people are doing and whether or not you think they're doing it right. And begin to live what you believe the Lord is telling you that lines up with his word, that lines up with your spirit within you and live what you believe and you've got to stop worrying what other people think. Now, trust me, is this easy? No. Is this going to be fixed tomorrow? No. Is this something that you're going to be dealing with for a while? Yes, but listen to me. Take it from someone who's going down that road. There is growth in this area. Amen. There is wonderful growth in this area. God never wants us to be on you all kind of Christians. Yet, he wants us to not worry what other people are thinking more than what he thinks. And when those struggles come, he wants us to choose to follow him, even if the rest of us Christians don't understand it. You understand? Again, we're going to be learning how to live in this freedom in Christ. And there's two main areas. One is you not worried as much what people think, and you're going to worry more what God thinks and living in the grace that you've received. And at the same time, you're going to stop looking around at everybody else and whether or not they're doing it right. Because that's up to their master as well. And you're going to find your bellyache will go away. And you're going to start to enjoy the freedom in who you are in Christ. And you're going to believe in a big God that even if they're in the wrong, you, God's going to be able to take care of it. Now, well, you say, wait a minute, why did Peter do this? Well, because Peter had a relationship with Peter. That's why Paul had a, Peter, a relationship with Peter. That's why Paul confronted Peter. He was in the right position. He was an apostle. He had the authority. It was his role. He had a relationship with Peter. And also he was distorting the gospel. He had to deal with it. He was the one for this job. There, I'm not saying we don't deal with sin. I'm not saying we don't deal with certain issues. But you've got to leave that to those whom God has given the authority. God has put in that role. God has put in that position. People that have the relationship that they understand that this is in love even though it's painful. It's not your job, but many of you were grown up in a church that everybody gets an equal vote and you're used to having a say on every little thing. I say to you, if you want to live in freedom in Christ, give up on your vote, give up on your say on every little thing and believe in a big God who's going to take care of it using whom he chosen to use it and begin. I said saying begin, begin to not worry as much what other people think, but to do what God you believe God is telling you. Let me give you a couple of scriptures and then I'm going to give you that last thing that I think ties back to what Jesus said in John chapter uh, 15. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 42 and 43. John chapter 12 verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, that's Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's why these people were saying, Paul, the only reason you're preaching this grace thing is because you just want everybody to like you. You're preaching an easy gospel. Paul says, if I was wanting everybody to like me, I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. I'm going to be honest with you. Because it's actually going to be a hard road to follow Christ in the way that it's supposed to be. But what's happened is over time in the church, we have all started to become people who all say that every Christian should look alike. And if you don't look like us, and you don't sing what we sing, and you don't have the version of the Bible I have, and you don't have the clothing that I wear to church, you're not a right Christian. And all of a sudden, we're starting to add works of the flesh into following Christ instead of just saying, you know what? If God wants to deal with someone's clothing, he can deal with someone's clothing. That's not going to be my call. I'm going to follow him and serve him, and I'm going to dress the way I feel comfortable and feel like he's pleased and glorified, and I'm going to love my brother and my sister. Because you know what? Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. Whether you're dressed right or not dressed right doesn't matter. Whether you've got the right version of the Bible or don't have the right version of the Bible doesn't really matter. The issue is righteousness, which only comes through Christ, and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And believing in a big God who's going to, just like he's taken years to get me to where I'm at and I got still ways to go. Just like he's taken years to get you where you are and you got years to go. He's going to get them there too. And why don't we just hug each other and say, hey, are you in Christ? Yes, I'm in Christ too. Let's encourage each other as we learn what it means to follow him. Because those who are led of the spirit of God are the children of God. Not those who have got the rule book memorized. Now, <clears throat> here's what I want to do. I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to then illustrate it in our time that we have left. To try to get God to act on your behalf because you did something is to commit the same sin that Moses did when he struck the rock after being commanded to speak to it. I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to illustrate what I'm talking about. To try to get God to act on your behalf because you did something is to commit the same sin that Moses did when he struck the rock after being commanded to speak to it. Now, time-wise, we don't have time to really look at these passages, so I want you to write them down, and I'm going to just talk on them. The first one is Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. That's where God tells Moses to go when the people in the wilderness are thirsty. He tells Moses, strike the rock. Moses does. He strikes the rock, water flows, and everybody drinks. Okay? That's Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Now, a few years down the road, they're in a very similar situation. And this time, in Numbers chapter 20, Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13, Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13, God tells Moses this time to speak to the rock. Now, Moses goes, and he stands in front of all the people in front of the rock, and he makes this statement. You can double check me. Are we going to have to provide water for you? And he struck the rock twice. Water flowed. But God then says to Moses, you blew it. And because you didn't obey me, and because you stole my glory, you're now not going to enter into the promised land. He took him to see it. But he's now not going to be allowed to go into it because of what he did. Now, I have to be honest with you. I've understood this story in parts all my life. I've understood certain parts of it. 
I've understood that it was the fact that he was disobedient. I've understood the fact that he, he uh, stole God's glory. But Wednesday, as we were driving in the motorhome we were borrowing to the Fort Wilderness for our family vacation, we were flipping on the radio station in the afternoon, and by God's sovereign, awesome design, we caught a radio station. I don't even know where it was. And we picked up a preacher out of Fort Lauderdale. His name's Bob Coy. He's actually a pastor at Fort, uh, uh, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, one of the best preachers of the Bible, and teachers especially, you'll ever hear. But we caught a very final part of his message, and he made a comment about this story that ties to where we are. And I want you to listen. He made this comment. He said, when Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it, God took him aside and said, Moses, you just ruined a beautiful picture that I was trying to paint. You see, the first time I told you to strike the rock, because remember, the rock is Jesus. And the rock had to be struck in order for what I want to accomplish to be accomplished. And on the cross, Jesus was struck. But after he has been struck, you don't need to strike him anymore to get him to act. You just speak to him. And the water will flow. Do you see it? In order for the water to flow, he had to be beaten. He had to be crucified in order for the grace and the water to flow, the Spirit to give us salvation. It had to be struck the first time. But from now on, you don't got to strike the rock anymore, folks. All you need to do is speak to him. And that's why Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And then he goes on and says... And then you can ask the Father and he'll give you whatever you need and whatever you ask in my name. Do you catch it? Folks, do you realize that when we think, well, what have I got to do in order to get you to move on my behalf? We're striking the rock. Speak to him. You're in Christ. But I haven't been that good. Uh, that didn't surprise him. He knew that before you were born. Come to him in faith and say, Father, because of what you've done on the cross and because I'm righteous, here's where I'm at. And you speak to him. And then the radio turned off and I turned to Becky and I said, God just gave me a little extra piece of the puzzle. Bob Coy didn't get credit for this one. Actually, neither did he then. God gave it to him. And I believe God gave this to me as well. What was the consequence for Moses striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock. He missed out on what? The promised land. Now, those of you that are in here that grew up with Southern Gospel music, I hate to do this to you, but the cross on the Jordan, Jordan does not mean going to heaven. All the old Southern Gospel songs talk about, and even some of the old hymns talk about crossing the Jordan is going to heaven. Well, I sure hope crossing the Jordan isn't going to heaven because when they crossed the Jordan, there was still sin and there were wars. Um, I don't want heaven to be like that personally, but crossing the Jordan was a picture of entering into the spirit filled life, the victorious Christian life. They had a choice Were they going to walk in obedience to God and do what he asked, trusting that he would do it through them and defeat their enemies and give them victory and the milk and the honey and all that stuff. Or were they going to try to do it on their own in their own strength? When they tried to do it in their own strength, they suffered. When they believed him and act in obedience to what they believe he had said, he blessed them. 
And I think that's why God said to Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land because he was continuing the picture. You've ruined the picture a little bit here because you don't have to strike the rock anymore. It's not you providing the water. It's me. And all you have to do is just ask. But I'm going to use you now to complete the picture. If you, in your walk with the Lord, keep trying to strike the rock trying to do certain things in order to get Jesus to act, you're going to miss out on the promised land. Oh, there's another part of the picture that we might have missed. The water still flowed. We can get stuff accomplished in the flesh. Many of our churches have been built in the flesh and sure look impressive. A lot of programs, a lot of strategies, a lot of whatever you want to call them have been done in the flesh and sure look good and we can give each other rewards for how much we've done. But we've been missing out on the promised land, folks. We've been missing out on the joy of the Christian life, the spirit-filled, victorious life as Jesus lives his life through us. And I don't want to miss out on the promised land anymore. And so I want you to pray for me as I pray for you that we'll stop trying to do things in order to become pleasing to God and daily accept in the morning and the first thing that we are pleasing to God because we're in Christ. We have been given righteousness and fullness. It's all been done already through the cross. And now he wants to teach us how to walk in that. On a day at a time. Oh, I, I could wipe out all those nations for you in the promised land all at once, but it wouldn't be for your best. I'm going to do it little by little. And that's how he's going to teach us what it means to walk with him. And so my encouragement to you tonight is stop committing the same sin that Moses did by trying to think you have to do something in order for God to act. Just ask. Let me pray for you. Go ahead, Jim. Jim, I was just mm -hmm. looking at, uh, if you look at Luke chapter 11, mm -hmm. uh, 1 through 16, and it has to do with the disciples. Jesus stops at a place and he's praying. When he finishes praying, the disciples say to him, said, could you teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples? And then the Lord's prayer is given, which is what? Speaking to the Father, right? Mm -hmm. Just what he said. Then Jesus turns around and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on a long journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, uh, Do not trouble me, for the door is now shut, and my child there in bed. I can't rise and give it to you. And I say to you, Jesus said, Though he shall not rise and give him because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And then it goes on from there. It says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And knock and the door will be open. It goes on from there all the way through 13. And at the end it says this. It says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you're not going to get through your life as a Christian without knowing that the Holy Spirit lives within you and that he does. He does what we cannot do, period. Which is everything. And you're not going to, and you're not going to bear a fruit. I'm surprised you didn't come back with that other little piece. 
get the fruit. There is no fruit unless the Holy Spirit is in you. That's right. That's yep. Thank you. Let me pray for us. Father, I can even sense in, in my spirit and in this room that we realize that we're on the tip of some deep truth here. There's a sense of, wow, wouldn't that be awesome? Yet, there's still that element of our flesh that's always going to be with us. But Lord Jesus, you lived in a body just like these. And you defeated the flesh. You were tempted in every way. We, we, we don't even struggle with certain things. But the word says you were tempted in every way, yet without sin. So you have already proven your power over sin. And over the flesh. And the good news is the word says that since you've already died, temptation has no power over you anymore. So when you live within us, you're not tempted at all. You have full power and no temptation. But you are patiently pursuing us, yet waiting for us to believe and to ask. Yet for all these years, we've been taught that you'll respond when we do certain things first. If we've been good enough. If we've given enough, if we've uh, read enough, if we've shared enough, if we've been faithful to church. if Lord, you are looking for the same thing you were looking for when you saved us. We came to that place where we said, we can't do it, Jesus, please do it. And we received it by faith. And you want us to live daily in that way. Lord, may we walk out of here believing that we're going to have all that we ask for. And may it begin with... You living your life through us. Oh, Lord, some of us have some issues in this room when it comes to finances and relationships or whatever it is. It might even be our health. And we always want to run to those things first. And Lord, thank you that you care about those things. But you care even more about us believing that you love us and that we're righteous, that we're forgiven, that we're holy, that we're in you. And Lord, many of us, unfortunately, still talk to you about a need of a job or a relationship repair or a health issue in hopes of it being a way that you show us that we're all we're, we're on your good side. That we've done well and you'll bless us. Lord, forgive us for that. May we first and fully accept whether you heal us, whether we get the job, whether relationships restored. May we accept that we are yours and forgiven and loved. And may we see if you choose to answer those prayers in the way we ask that just simply as icing on the cake. Father, may our relationship with you be the first and foremost thing. And may we never ever get to that place that we say, well, wait a minute, we did this and we did that. May we say we walked and with you and trusted you. And Lord, I know that you're going to say to each of us in those times, I know. Welcome. Lord Jesus, may we get a taste of heaven on this earth. Because heaven is more about you than anything else. And we thank you for this. And Jesus, it's because of you that we come. And we thank you for the chance to talk to the Father in this way. Amen. Amen.